Welcome to Brain Trust Philanthropy, powered by Vitreo. We bring you free-flowing conversations with top thought leaders in philanthropy and the nonprofit sector. Sit back, relax, listen and enjoy as we share ideas and discuss topics that are important, timely, and we hope will transform the nonprofit world. This is episode five, recorded Thursday, July 13th, 2017. I'm Vincent Duckworth. I'm a fundraiser and a partner with Vitreo Group. We are a national agency focused on bold leadership and transformative fundraising. In this episode, we will be speaking with Alison Piscalny, most recently the Vice President of External Affairs at Telespark in Calgary, and with Dale Boniface, the principal and founder of Give Canada and Spectrum Marketing in Vancouver. Today's topic is capital campaigns in the 21st century. What has changed? What hasn't? Fundraising campaigns in the late 1990s topped out in the hundreds of millions of dollars. Today, the largest campaigns are in the billions of dollars. Despite this order of magnitude change in the campaign goals, much of the methods and approaches to raising these vast sums has not changed, or has it? Join us as we discuss just this question with our guests today. All this and more is coming up next on Brain Trust Philanthropy, powered by Vitreo. We have two terrific guests with us today. Our third guest, Stephanie Rayner Holhall, has caught a bit of the flu bug and won't be able to join us. We'll get to her on a future podcast. I hope you feel better soon, Stephanie. Joining us from Calgary, we have Allison Scalney. Vitreo is currently engaged with Telespark, and it's through that work that Allison and I reconnected after almost 20 years. Welcome to our little podcast, Allison. Allison, you and I first met when you worked for what was to become Enbridge, but was actually called IPL at the time. I was working as a fundraiser at the University of Alberta in engineering, and you were a public affairs advisor for IPL. IPL officially became Enbridge in 1998. If your LinkedIn profile is correct, you were there then. I remember talking with Brian McNeil and Pat Daniel about the new brand. It was a big deal. You were in the middle of that. What was it like? Oh, it was exciting times. I was a fairly fresh graduate from the University of Calgary and was given the opportunity to work for IPL up in Edmonton. Uh, I, like many graduates at the time, couldn't find work in the city, so I got on my uh, into my little car and drove up to Edmonton and took the first job that I could find, which was working with IPL. And then shortly thereafter, the company embarked on a rebranding campaign and uh, what a special opportunity for someone who is fresh out of university to get to work on such a big brand project. And my specific objective really was to roll the brand out across the pipeline network, which ran across Canada down through the United States. And at the time, there were also assets in Venezuela and in Colombia. So I had the opportunity to do an international rebranding campaign, which was an absolute thrill. It was a lot of fun. Wow. That's a great opportunity coming right out of school. Mm -hmm. It was huge, and I carried a lot of what I learned from there into uh, branding work that I did subsequently at uh, Weber Shandwick and certainly in building the brand for the Center for Affordable Water and Sanitation Technology and for Telespark. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was one of the first um, sort of rebrands at a a very large scale in Canada. You know, it was – I don't believe Telus had had made their rebrand change yet or it was close to then. Was it after or before TELUS? It was actually in proximity, and uh, you might notice that there's some 
there's some likeness to the two identities of the two different yes. corporations. And uh, it's no secret, actually, that the same branding agency out of New York, Lippincott and Margulies, had worked on both branding campaigns. And that sort of um, stylized first letter was all the rage at the time. So Enbridge yeah. grasped onto that, and so did Telus. But actually, um, it presented some really exciting opportunities for the rebrand, and I can share with the listeners at another time over cocktails if you want to reach out about some of the challenges we had in rolling that out, as well as some of the fun, including trying to replicate the Enbridge e-swirl on the top of a morning glory cupcake that was distributed at the morning launch of the brand. Really tricky to get that just right on the top of a cupcake. Yeah, it's quite the swirl. Now, I, I, I'm looking right now at a, a, a fairly nice uh, pen uh, that, that was put out as part of the rebranding. It's got two colors. It's silver and gold. Uh, sort of the goldy uh, uh, color of the of the Enbridge logo with it, and that was one of the things that was we were doing a gift announcement around the time of the rebranding, and that was they were available for everybody as part of the rebranding uh, rollout. So that was a lot of fun. That's a coveted um, item. It is a coveted item. I still mm-hmm. have it and still works. It's a pretty good pen. Hey, um, so thanks. We made some good choices. <laughs> exactly. So thanks, Allison. Also joining us from a bit further west uh, in Vancouver is Dale Boniface. Uh, I, I've long been aware of Dale and his work with some of Canada's most influential and affluent major donors. Dale, welcome to the podcast. With Thanks, Vincent. The work, you're here, welcome. With the work Dale does around naming of academic schools and my work in developing the naming value of these schools, we always seem to be uh, bumping into each other's work. A few years back, in recognition of, of those synergies, we took the opportunity to get to know each other better with a with a dinner in Vancouver and a lunch in Calgary and we had a lot of fun at, at both those things. Dale, I know we'll be touching on your experiences about transformational giving in Canada later in the program, but what we all want to know is, when did you decide that the traditional role of a fundraiser working directly for a nonprofit wasn't wasn't for you anymore? What was that defining moment that opened up the door to these amazing decades of work you've done with Canada's largest donors? Um, thanks, Vincent. It's great to be here, Allison. It's great to great to hear from you and see you again. Um, I think, Vincent, from my standpoint, if I look back on it, I got to spend some time at, uh, at, at Expo 86 in terms of working for Jimmy Pattison and Mel Cooper, who were two really exceptional, uh, not only philanthropists, but community and business leaders, and um, got involved with, with that from a corporate sponsorship standpoint and uh had the good fortune uh of getting involved with uh Coca-Cola outside of Expo in 86 and got involved in the Calgary Olympics in 88 and also with Coca-Cola in Seoul and it became really clear for me that um I wanted to work outside of um a specific organization having seen the power of an organization like a coca-cola and its strong marketing and branding and exceptional skills in that area um, it became clear that uh, there were some real opportunities and some eye-opening opportunities so we got involved and started doing a company called spectrum marketing facilitating the uh, naming, uh, first of all, um, the, some sponsorships and, and, uh, long-term, 
exclusive pouring rights at some 70 universities in Canada and the U.S., and then um, turned that into doing some uh, some naming namings of public facilities, uh, stadiums, arenas, um, science centers across the country with one of the great philanthropic and marketing companies, Telus, and and uh, so we help facilitate those on behalf of clients, and and then clients said, hey your process works what about working with donors and um, so we started doing that with donors and uh, under the banner of a company called Give Canada and it focuses on leadership gifts of typically five to fifty million dollars and we work with both corporate or both individuals uh, from a donor family side and and also the uh, institutions themselves so um, Really enjoying it. Um, love the love the giving back and watching uh, individuals and families uh, take pride in leadership in terms of their community, and it's uh, it's fantastic. So, well, thanks, Dale. I, I mean, I don't want to I don't want to call you a superhero, but you, you kind of are in, in Canada, and so so we just got your or we got your origin story. So thank you for that. Yeah. Um, so thank thank you all for, for joining us on this, our, our fifth <laughs> podcast. We're excited to, to hear from you all. Uh, today's topic is capital campaigns in the 21st century, what has changed and what hasn't. Capital campaigns, those endeavors undertaken by organizations to grow and enhance their facilities, their brands, their programs, and their assets, have become, for some, billion-dollar adventures taking a decade or more to complete. When I first began in fundraising, the largest campaign that I was aware of was in the hundreds of millions of dollars. The University of Alberta campaign in the late 1990s had a goal of $145 million. Canada's first billion-dollar campaign in education was, of course, at the University of Toronto and was also in the late 1990s. We have not looked back since. Despite the order of magnitude increases in the goal amounts, the methodologies and approaches for raising these vast sums has not changed much, or, or have they? Dale, let's start with you. What's the current state of capital campaigning in Canada, and are we doing it right? Um, I, my my sense is is that the traditional campaign model is broke, and I know a lot of people don't want to hear that, but I believe personally that we've got to shift the model and reject the model, um, where we're making far less asks of individuals. Um, uh, we're far more focused on the individuals, the donors and the corporations that we're looking to uh, partner with or attract in terms of them making an investment uh, into a campaign. And, and I think the asks need to be a lot larger. So right, right now, so, I think that, so, so asking fewer and making larger asks. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think we're really burning out uh, donors. There's a lot of fatigue uh, the economy in certain regions is, is tough, and yet um, we have uh, – I watch people, uh, institutions with their own agenda, not taking uh, into account uh, the needs of major donors or major corporations. And it's – I think it's a challenging time for uh, both um, – Board of Governors at institutions and boards of directors and at not-for-profits 
and it's an important time for major, I think, development people to look hard at the way they're doing business and to increase uh, uh, strategically the way in which they uh, they are doing it. I think they really have to look hard at, uh, at the process and uh, the end result because there are too many asks being made for too few amounts of money. And uh, to people who aren't necessarily, or corporations who aren't necessarily uh, engaged with uh, an institution or a charity. It's um, you know, an interesting... Um, Go ahead, Alfred. in on that. Um, yeah. I, I would agree, actually, with Dale, particularly on the fewer asks for larger amounts. I, From what I've been able to observe, there's... Um, a real when you've when you've got a lot of of contributions at smaller amounts to a to an organization the effort to steward and and fulfill the obligations back to the sponsor gets very um diluted and i don't think that anybody wins when you've got a situation where an institution is not able to completely fulfill the promises that it's made to an organization that's sponsored um and so I think if we could concentrate our efforts on fewer contributors at a at a, at a more uh, senior amount, then we would be able to do a better job of, of fulfilling and stewarding those contributions so that both the brand and the institution can win in the end. Hmm. Thanks, Allison. Go ahead, Dale. Yeah, no, I, I, Allison, I really agree. I, I think also uh, what happens is too many institutions – again, with their own agenda, uh, hand out, and they go through the process, the sales process, and the attraction of a donor or a corporation. They, the individual or family or corporation makes that investment, and it's sort of a love them and leave them. And, yeah. uh, and uh, my sense is is that we're e- we either have too many uh partnerships at not an, at not the right level or we internally are just not doing what it takes after the sale to steward mm-hmm. because those people are the people who have crossed the line or those corporations and they're the ones investing in in in, in your project or in your business mm-hmm. and, and uh like everyone they it's just not a check writing exercise anymore no, and I actually want to flip it around. It's such a good point, Dale, in that, um, you know, when we talk about what's changed in the 21st century, and now I just want to say out loud that I was not fundraising in the 20th century, so I can't, I can't say I have an experience of that. However, what I do know, having worked on both the brand and the, and the uh, sponsorship side, is that the consumer has changed as well, in that what the consumer Tell us about wants, that. Yeah, what the consumer wants in its experience of the brand is different now. Um, you know, the, the the generation that we're working with now has a, a higher expectation of brand experience that goes beyond the product. They want to get to know who the company is. They want to know that they're associating themselves with uh, with a brand that they feel a values alignment with. And so the obligation on the part of the brand, but also on the part of the institution, is a, is a, we have to be really open and honest with ourselves. Does this relationship make sense? Uh, will this relationship further um, the advancement of the values of both organizations? And does this relationship make sense to the consumer? 
And I think in a lot of cases, that work and that honest, real digging into the values and being honest about that isn't necessarily happening in the heyday and the fun of um, sponsorship sales uh, on on the part of both the institutions and the brands. Um, and then on the end, on the other end of it, once that the deal has been signed and we're also satisfied with ourselves, the the work that happens afterwards to fulfill that values alignment is 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 a much bigger and deeper exercise than what we would have been doing before. And that's where you need a deeper integration at the executive level between the sponsorship, solicitation, and philanthropy, but also with the marketing people who are going to be part of fulfilling some of the commitments that have been made. So a big piece, just to sum up that big, long diatribe, is the change in the consumer and the consumer expectations and needs of its brand that, that they're associating with. I think they want to be far more hands-on than ever before. Uh, mm-hmm. They want to know how their money is being spent and um, and very specifically uh, what role government might play. Uh, mm-hmm. in investment today is not just if I'm if I'm making a commitment of ten million dollars, where is government in terms of match and behind it? Um, you know, how do I double up on my money or how do how does the institution look to triple up on that money? And uh and and <clears throat> that that they also are expecting and, and Allison's very right, they're really expecting to be stewarded, not wined and dined at all. But they mm-hmm. just want to know that those funds are being used effectively and properly in a manner in which they were uh it was expressed they would be used. Dale, I just want to pick up on the um, the thread about the um, how intentional these uh, these uh, these major donors are around having government um, step up properly and make uh, not not just make promises but make good on that. I know that uh, uh, I'm sure you've seen where where some of these gifts have had uh, uh, requirements associated with them that the government actually put in writing that they'll participate in the project. Well. So. Uh- from from my standpoint, depending on the project, uh, I I I think it's really cr- critical. Government match uh, becomes, or um, you may have an anonymous donor match uh, that may be a non-government entity. Um, but I, they are. I I think that they're paramount in the eyes of at least sophisticated leadership donors who are making significant contributions. Um, Ten to fifteen percent of their net wealth. Mm-hmm. How, I, I want to pick up on that too. How sophisticated has, has, has have donors' sophistication evolved over the last twenty years? Are they are they more sophisticated today than they were twenty years ago, or 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 is that just something that's always been there and we're just pegging into it? Um, well, first of all, I think it's the the, the size of the gifts have changed, and so. The magnitude of the asks have changed. The, the the relationships between the institution and the donor and the families have changed. And so, my sense is is that there is a uh, far greater increase in terms of expectation with sophisticated donors today uh, in terms of how those monies are being used and in what manner and a reporting system. Um, 
digging far deeper into mm-hmm. uh, a proposal than ever before, you know, in, 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 and I think that that's what's really, really changed. There's a lot more questions, um, and, and donors are being, I mean, you can imagine the number of requests that, um, Community foundations like the TELUS Community Foundation, for example, or TELUS Corporately, I use them just as an example, Rogers, Bell, uh, Shaw would all be the same. The number of requests they get on a, on a, a, a daily basis, it's got to be astronomical. It is astronomical, and I just wanted to add to that, too, that you know, back to the kinds of questions that are being asked. I haven't seen the questions have changed in terms of the nature of them. We're still asking about what's your strategy, what are your results, and how are you governed. So those are the yeah. three things that I just think every it doesn't it doesn't matter how much time passes. The three things they want to know, but the depth to which they want to ask that question. So, for example, uh, in my previous work, the extent to which a donor wants to know wants to meet and wants to spend time with the people that are actually doing the work. There was a time when it was good enough for the sponsor or the donor to meet your CEO, to meet your executive team and get to know them because these are the people governing the organization for sure and and setting the strategy. But I'm seeing more interest in getting to know the program people, uh, the person who's actually going to deliver on the program uh, spending time with them, getting to know those that are impacted by the program and, and doing that kind of work. So um, the, the obligation is on the, the property or the institution to then uh, kind of broker or create those moments or those chances for the donor or the sponsor to actually get to know the organization at that level. So what that means for the organizations is that we need to be um, – aware of whether our staff are comfortable doing that. We need to coach them and train them in doing those kinds of things so that when we put them in front of the donor or the sponsor, they're comfortable and they're able to deliver the goods. Because if I, I found that in my work, if I could connect the donor or the sponsor directly with the guy or the gal that was going to be doing and delivering the program, it was almost, almost always a slam dunk. But it was only a slam dunk if I did my work to make sure they were prepared and they knew what they were doing when going into that. So there's just and a level of been. intimacy that's extraordinary yeah. right now. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, and yeah. probably they, the, those line, those line staff folks and those people, those who are really making it happen day to day. There's no question that um, if they're they're your best salesperson, if uh, they are excited and engaged and get to be part of uh, the uh, involvement in the in the pitch and being involved with the donor, I mean we're we're asking them internally to deliver on the donor's wishes, and in many cases, uh, those people have never met the donor and are kept out of meetings. Mm -hmm. Um, And and I I think think that needs to change. Yeah, I, 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 I would agree with you. I think the other thing too that's happening is, is that, um, we, in terms of a sophisticated donor, who, uh, they have their areas of interest, uh, that, um, that they may want to invest in terms of an organization. We bring the institution, they're interested in the institution, the institution brings them in, 
they have a preconceived, the institution has a preconceived or the charity preconceived notion about what's right for the donor uh, and <laughs> what, where the donor should make the investment. And um, more often than not today, what I'm seeing, and Allison, I'm sure you're, you're the same with this, is, is that the donor comes in, gets excited, gets uh, passion, becomes more passionate about the institution, and um, looks to areas where they think from, whether it's using their business acumen or an investment, where they think they can help grow the organization rather than just money going into uh, mm -hmm. a general revenue pot. And I think that's uh, th that's a very significant difference between the old days and today, where they're being far more directed and far more hands-on, and, mm -hmm. um, and 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 it's important. Um, uh, it's important for institutions and for fundraisers to understand that. Absolutely, and I think it's such a good point, Dale, because what's making what's making that possible is that institutions uh, on the on the sponsoring side so sponsors are are getting more narrow in where they want to invest and yeah. so what they're able to do then and I'll, I'll use crescent point as an example a wonderful example of that in that crescent point has said to the said to themselves what we think is really really important is early childhood education so we're going to invest in that from top to bottom along a very deep narrow silo and so what they're able to do then is because they're investing in one area they know a lot about it the staff that work there and, and negotiate sponsorships understand where the value is they know what value looks like they know how to measure it but they also know how to create synergies in that ecosystem so for example uh, to use telespark as an example uh, crescent point was one of the early sponsors of the creative kids museum in that facility uh, sponsored that space to a, a signature level, and since then, our work with um, with Crescent Point led us to engage one of their other uh, organizations, which is In From the Cold, who's also sponsored by Crescent Point, and we've uh, since adopted them as an organization under the Telespark um, umbrella and provide them with other value back to their organization. For example, they're now hosting their fundraiser at Telespark, and Telespark sponsors their fundraiser and provides them with a venue at no cost. But also, we're looking at ways of providing some of what we're good at, which is early childhood education, to help train their staff in early childhood education at the, at the inn to support the children that are needing to use that uh, institution um, to to be able to learn and engage while they're staying in their facilities. So it's it's Crescent Point is behind brokering all of those relationships because they're able to really narrow their focus in an area that they believe in completely. And no doubt that leadership came directly from Scott Saxberg, the CEO. He believed in that, and he was able to cultivate that same belief and interest among the staff that now across the whole organization, they believe that it's important, and then they're able to have a greater impact that way. Crescent Point is an amazing organization, and that space at Telespark is truly uh, a great space. And uh, I've worked with Scott on a, on a couple of occasions, and I echo all of that. Um, it's interesting to hear, Allison um, and, and, and Dale, uh, 
this idea, there's a disconnect I'm hearing um, that that uh, maybe some organizations have recognized, but many haven't. That, uh, they, that while they espouse, um, uh, you know, sponsor-driven and donor-driven, they're not actually living that. They 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 they, they, they they're paying a little lip service to it, and then they're saying, yes, but this is what we need. Um, and uh, and I, I'm hearing that that's <clears throat> not not, wor- not working for corporations, and it's not working for individuals. Well, I, I, I absolutely, in, in terms of you summing it up, I, I would agree with you. I think the other, the other challenge, just to take a bit of a different direction to this, and if we want and come back to it, but um, the uh, the number uh, the number of uh, individuals that. Uh, a charity or a organization will go after just because they quote have money in the community or they made a commitment to another organization. So, you know, th- we just willy nilly go after these individuals. Those days are really over. Um, Allison and I have talked about this a lot where the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Even in a high windstorm, you have major donors and corporations who are engaged or in some some form involved or attracted to your organization, um, they're the ones who are going to pro- you're probably going to generate 80% of your revenue from in terms of donations and sponsorships, um, and your focus has to be on those individuals and stewarding and building on those individuals rather than just because there are 50 individuals or 75 individuals in the community with huge wealth, um, there may be only three, if we're mm-hmm. lucky, that have a passion and engagement uh, to uh, an organization or to, an, to a, a not-for-profit or a, a, a charity and a, or an institution. And it's really important, I think, that we get very strategic and very focused on the needs of those individuals to help them cross the line in making an investment with an organization. Well, Dale, one question I have then, uh, and we've talked about this, like you said, extensively, is the way that we measure a capital campaign flawed, or is it sort of the pressure that comes from, from the board and the executive to deliver on the campaign targets, or both, that needs to change? Well, uh, I think there's got to be some uh, board education. Um, first of all, I'm not a believe. I, I believe that boards should, in terms of fundraising, should help facilitate and should, uh, when it's appropriate, be in the room. As should a, a a president or a CEO of an organization or a vice president. Um, but it's, I think it's really, really important um, that that we have we have it right in terms of who's making the ask, who's part of the uh, the ask, and you'll have to excuse me, um, Vince. I um, I just lost my train of thought. My apologies. That's okay. I think you were talking a little bit about the um, the board education piece and the fact that people, I think, get caught up 
in 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 a particular um, way of doing business, and that's not actually effective in a campaign. So I'm going to turn it back to you. I hope that helps. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. It does. And my apologies. Um, the the challenge. I understand at your age, Dale. It's it's a problem. Yeah, you know, I. Um, too. I, you know, I, 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 my walker actually is right beside my desk. So I heard it creaking. I'll send you some oil. <laughs> the, um, I think there is a huge expectation by board members, and there is an education process that's needed. Um, not, I, I'm not a believer in board members making asks. I am a believer in board members opening doors. And I think that it is the responsibility of the senior staff, the fundraiser, the, and, and helping the president of the organization or CEO to achieve those fundraising results. But I also believe that fewer asks help um, bring um, uh, uh, board members, governors, and directors uh into the fold and they see the value on fewer asks at bigger levels rather than um, having them fatigued. Um, the, 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 the fundraising board uh, fatigue and frustration. Huge, huge, is huge, huge in this country. And, you know, it's, it, I, I remember a statistic once that someone said to me that four out of five asks fail. So, right. Um, and if I remember correctly, I think something like five out of six campaigns in the old days never public, never met their publicly stated, uh, uh, um, objective. Hmm. And I think that all gets wrapped around expectations and how we're pitching. So you're making thousands of asks at the small level versus getting 60% of your work done in the front end with larger gifts. Um, and that's where I see that fundraising model broken. I think we have to turn it upside down and generate the majority of our business in, or the majority of our fundraising in, uh, in six or seven or three or four larger gifts and then um, have more of a public uh, campaign on the back end. I want to push back just a bit on that, Dale, uh, not because I disagree with you, but just on the language I want to clarify. Um, we talked about the fundraising model is broken. Actually, the, what you just talked about is actually in the tenets of fundraising. The, 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 you know, the, the typical gift table has that small number of gifts at the top that if you do that, you're going to win. I've seen, what I see is that people gravitate to the middle or the bottom of the chart. And I'm not just talking about staff. I'm talking about um, uh, board members, et cetera, et cetera. So I, the model itself is, I don't know if it's broken, but some of the tools are still there. The people are just not using the tools. Well, except that, you know, in a traditional model, if I looked at a $100 million campaign, you might have one gift at 10, you know, in a, in a traditional basis, you might have one gift at 10. You know, you may have uh, three or four gifts at four to five and maybe six or eight gifts at, at one to two million, the number at 10 and on and on and on. Where, you know, in that, in that major gift-oriented chart on a $100 million campaign, you probably have... Um, you probably have in a hundred million dollar campaign forty to fifty million of that done in uh, in three to five 
uh, gifts. And so that's what brings board, that's what, to me, what gets board members excited because they start to see the snowballing effect and, uh, it helps, uh, it helps for donors who start to develop the confidence and they see, see the snowballing and they want to get involved and, and, and they want to see an organization succeed in, in a campaign. And, and I, my sense is, is, is that, that, that traditional model where there were so many, so many medium-sized gifts. Um, it just, it, 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 I, I, I believe that what happens is organizations get to a point and they start to flounder in terms of their fundraising on all of these medium-sized gifts. And someone who could have made a gift of ten million dollars has was well, asked for five hundred thousand dollars. Exactly. Yeah. And it's yeah. part okay, of Okay, I hear it. So, um, you know, I'm, curious, I'm curious about the extent to which, um, you know, having the tools and being equipped to go for the big ask. And I think uh, from what I've seen is in the heyday of pursuing the mid-range gifts, that the time suck that goes into that means that the cultivation of the of the major contributor isn't happening. And the the cultivation of that major contributor, back to a point that I made earlier about the consumer, is for us as fundraisers to get our, our sort of our business savvy on to understand what's going on in the business of the prospect that we're pursuing. And now, of course, I'm talking corporate sponsorship. Mm-hmm. Um, the extent to which small fundraising teams need to get to know the business of every um, every bank, every um, oil field services company, uh, every um, telecommunications company to understand how their consumer segmentation strategies are going and how those align with the the sort of um, the the consumer that uh, the sponsoring property will be able to provide. Um, you're just not able to do that if you're chasing. No, no, that's too much. It's yeah, too much. It's too much. It's too much. And I think that, um, you know, back to Dale's point earlier about, you know who your, your three to five or your five to seven are. Um, being free, uh, in a, to your board, to your, to your executive team, to be able to steward and go, uh, go into the deeps with those three to five or five to seven, um, is, is also part of uh, establishing performance indicators for the fundraising department. And too often performance indicators are focused on, um, are focused on, um, volume and, uh, sort of a development pipeline that continues to mm-hmm. populate your prospect pipeline with new and more. Where instead, mm-hmm. What we need to be looking at is not just basic interactions either. Again, it's that deep intimacy and the amount of effort that it takes to curate a really, really great meeting of a sponsor with the line manager, with the beneficiary of a program. That stuff takes time and the quality of that, but that one interaction is worth so much more than a dozen hosting opportunities. At That's a, right. At a, at a, We're at a, being too shallow. And, I, um, it's not going deep at, enough. And you look at the you look at the way. Uh, I, I mean, some development uh, shops right now, in terms of uh, some institutions, you know, how many how many new calls? Do, like, I understand mm-hmm. the process of of filling uh, of, of of filling the pipeline with activity, but if you're filling the pipeline up with uh, uh, with activity. Uh, 
by making calls on people who have absolutely no interest or passion or consideration of an organization you know the, the, you know your your budget is is to make uh 30 new calls in a month well i i'd ra- i'd rather i'd rather un, uh, have a, a development person determine uh everything they can about the top two or three uh prospects in that month and make 30 new calls because that's mm-hmm. going to pay off in a mm-hmm. huge way and that's know, a huge shift Dale, that's a huge shift, and I, I'm glad that you highlighted it, but that's one of the things that probably has to be thought about in in a very deep way, because that is not the direction that is currently in play. No, wow. and in fact, I want to add to that, because one of my biggest struggles uh, at the vice president level, at the executive level, is hiring and retaining a development director and senior staff that will focus on that, because it's... It's so easy to hire someone that looks really good on paper, that looks productive, that looks like they're delivering, that looks like they're busy. But at the end of the day, are they actually delivering on relationships? And I would say no. And I have had such a struggle in hiring staff that can actually deliver on relationships. And too often, um, uh, fundraising uh, staff managed to make their way around our sector and our industry looking busy but delivering absolutely nothing. And for some reason, these folks continue to find opportunities at other organizations and find employment because they they look really great on paper. But we need to be asking ourselves, can you deliver on relationships? Uh, Because organizations that cannot afford to pay someone who delivers nothing continue to snatch up employees that are not able to deliver on that and I'm that's a whole other that, that, that's okay that's a whole other podcast and i want to i know uh we we can i can easily see this podcast being two or three more podcasts so yeah. we're going <laughs> to definitely look at that i want to maybe just close this topic um or wrap it in a bow uh, by just offering up a question to the two of you and maybe i'm putting you on the spot so don't feel like you need to answer but who's doing this right like can you can you can like can, like who, which organizations out there are really um, starting to turn the corner on this? Are starting to actually be donor driven? Are starting to think about um, focusing on the top two or three and not the uh, middle uh, four hundred? Um, Allison, do you want to start? No, you go ahead, Dale. You've got a broader view, but I've got a couple in mind that I'll add in. Yeah, I, I think people would like to hear and be a good case study. So let us know. I can't speak for um, I can't speak for uh, organizations that we haven't worked for. Um, I, you know, there are a lot of extraordinary gifts. For example, that the UFC has been announcing, and mm-hmm. even in in tough tough times, uh, they've done an extraordinary job with some some very very large gifts, and they're obviously doing it right. I look at the um, the the folks at the University of Guelph. Uh, there's no question. Uh, Congratulations that, on that, by the way. Well, you know, we we just provided some strategy behind the scenes, which is the best part of all of these uh, gifts. But I look at I look at that development team and the way in which they steward and are strategic and specific. Um, they never ever the donors first. Uh, they they are very sensitive to that, and and they they spend time in terms of getting a donor involved. 
and I think they're they're clearly on the right track, and the results are showing it. Uh, clearly, Sate. I wish Stephanie was uh, here on the call, but Sate did an extraordinary job uh, uh, from a fundraising standpoint. They focused on large gifts, uh, and they the majority of their campaign was completed on on large gifts, which used to be corporately, and uh, you know. Uh, Amazing the, the the individuals who stepped up in a significant way, alumni that were highly supportive of what uh, that organization. So I would say, State uh, University uh, University of Lethbridge in in in, uh, in Alberta again, uh, folks like Chris Horbatuski I think do an exceptional job uh, in terms of stewarding and paying attention to donors. Uh, I know Allison when she was with uh, Telespark, you know, same same thing. And I, I, you know, I'm not just blowing people's horns here; they get it, um, and uh, they're doing it right. And the results are showing for it. And instead of being their agenda, it's the donor's agenda, and the partnership okay. starts to develop between the two. Those are great Thank examples, you, Dale. Dale. Thank you. Allison? Thank you. Uh, thank you, Dale. Of course, uh, I, I, I think Telespark having, you know, of course, I'm, I'm biased, but I think that they've done an earnest job in their sponsorship negotiation, particularly given the challenges of sponsorship solicitation for um, an organization that is science-based. So being able to solicit sponsorships that will be able to further the mission uh, the organization has always taken that very, very seriously. And in fact, in general, the Science Center Network across the country has done a, a fantastic job at soliciting sponsorships that can further the mission of um, science and fact-based culture, which is increasingly important these days, as we're all well aware. I think also... We live in a post-fact uh, world. Well, and that science centers have an important role to play in that. There's yeah. a whole other yeah. podcast in that, my friend. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, um, so who one, else? I would also echo SAIT. I've been really excited to watch some of their earnest and honest um, uh, arrangements that they've made with, with the community. I think their, uh, their team is forceful and um, also well-intentioned, and I, I've been excited to watch the work that they've been doing. I've also been excited to watch the work that's been going on with the Children's Hospital Foundation mm-hmm. uh, and Children's Causes are one uh, that I'm, I'm passionate about, but children's health and the fact that we have a, a hospital of its stature that's able to work with children's oncology to the extent that the Children's Hospital Foundation has been able to cultivate. And they're not noisy about it. They go about it, they're quiet, but they're honest, and they're doing honest and results-based work, and I think that's important. And then the last one I wanted to add that I'm excited to watch, that's unproven, but I'm excited to watch it, is what's been happening with the cancer charities across the country and what they <laughs> The merging. The merging. And I, I'll be interested to watch what they're able to now do as they consolidate and um, and take a sh- uh, maybe a louder voice in advocacy uh, in some of the prevention work, but then also in uh, negotiating um, impactful sponsorships that are national. I think that's right. Yeah, they need to they need to be rewarded for that. Sorry, Dale. Uh, they need to be rewarded for uh, for for taking those stands. That's breast cancer that those two charities mm-hmm. have joined, and most recently that was colon cancer. So, yeah. um, Dale, sorry, I cut you off. What were you no. going to say? Yeah, no, I we did some work uh, a long time ago, a few years back, uh, for uh, the Canadian Cancer Society, and if I remember correctly, there was something it was either two hundred and thirty-two or three hundred and twenty-something. 
uh, agencies in Canada, fundraising agencies that had the word cancer in it. Um, from a branding standpoint, it's just an ab- it was an absolute nightmare. And you know, if if those types of organizations can work together and pull together and start to fundraise uh, as 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 an umbrella organization, I think it would be great. Uh, and another topic, another day. I think the arts community has to do the same thing. I think absolutely. They're so, all so, eating so. each other's lunch, and um, yeah, from a fundraising standpoint, it, it, it donors are getting very, very specific about what they want to give to and how much and the impact that Allison talks about. And so I think it's really important that as a sector, and it's another discussion, but they really need to come together. Exactly. Allison, are you still on the board of Theatre Junction? Uh, yes, I am. I'm on the board of governors. Yeah, and it's been yeah. exciting to watch, actually. Um, they, they're the consolidation effort that's happening for them to go uh, up to the province to uh, mm-hmm. to engage the province in, in funding for the whole sector because uh, certainly they need it. Um, I I am a huge believer in the importance of arts and creativity and innovation in this city uh, that fuels a whole lot of other things. So I think it'll be exciting to watch um, this first this first effort at speaking as a sector with our with our province. This sort of learning the messaging that will come from that will will help them to be able to speak with a more collective voice in approaching sponsors and philanthropists as well. Thank you. Um, thank you for sharing those um, those those sector leaders with with our audience. I, I know people like to to, to see where to, to focus their attention. So thank you. What a fantastic discussion. I uh, I had no doubt that we would have a great discussion. Clearly, it was a big topic, uh, and I think there's you know as, as always with our podcast, there's many other topics that came out of it. So thank you both. Uh, you've been terrific guests, Allison Fitzcalli, Dale Boniface. I hope we can have you both back on our podcast. Uh, before we go, before we go, I want each of you to have a chance to tell us a little bit more about what you're working on, or, or, or you know, you know what, where people can reach you. Uh, we'll start with you, Dale. Anything you want our listening audience to know? Um, well, our our focus uh, most recently has been uh, um, with the uh, Dick Heskane and I are the co-executors of a large uh, estate of a philanthropist and. Uh, and extraordinary art and artifact collector, and so we're uh, uh, co-executing co-execu- uh, that process, um, which has been a long uh, process, and uh, also working with uh, an organization on helping a donor uh, with regard to a business school and uh, the naming of a business school, which has um, been really exciting. And great because it um, it will it's the donor's agenda rather than the institution's. Agenda. Hey, back and, to where we should be. Yeah, and so and it's a very special donor which will make a very significant difference uh, uh, for others to follow. And I I think making examples of. Uh, of individuals' philanthropy and in terms of how it's being used um, in different communities and cultures is, is going to be really important. And this is a good one and an exciting one. So, thank you, Dale. You um, your legacy in this country is huge, and we uh, we appreciate it. So, thank you for that. By the way, 
Um, I, I live in a part of Calgary that if I just go to the end of the street and I walk up the bluff, I can knock on the door and Lois Haskain will pop her head out. Uh, uh, she lives on the hill and I live down in Sunnyside. What so. a, uh, what a great lady. And, uh, you know, Dick's a great example of a, an extraordinary community and business leader, uh, exceptional philanthropist. I mean, you, you look at what his, what his gift did in terms of the University of Calgary and how it all started. Oh, business schools across the country. But business schools across the country. Um, but, uh, you know, he is, um, I, uh, he is the poster boy for that institution in my mind. I think. I agree. That, uh, he, you know, he is extraordinary and, um, you know, uh, so that's the, that's the kind of individual that every, every institution wishes they could, uh, could uh, enjoy in partnership, and 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 that 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 was an important one. So uh, those are, those are fun individuals to work with. Thank you, Allison. What's your uh, last word? What do you want people to know? What do you, well, what do you I uh, I'm on a sabbatical over the summer, so as you'll notice nice. in my LinkedIn profile that I uh, resigned from Telespark at the end of June. Uh, finished up my work there, and I'll be enjoying my children for the summer. My five and seven year old. But nice. uh, not for long. I'm a better mother as a working mother, and I'm proud and uh, confident in saying that. Um, so hopefully this fall I'll be picking up some more interesting work. I am a big believer in this province. I think Alberta has wonderful aspirations for itself, and I want to continue to be part of helping the province be all that it uh, aspires to be. Um, and so community development work is in my blood. That's what I'll be doing this fall. And if you, um, if any of the listeners want to reach out to me over the summer, my phone number and my email is available off my LinkedIn profile uh, at A. Pitscalny. Uh So that's my profile handle. So please reach out. Well, thanks, Allison. You, um, you've been a huge role model for um, uh, women in leadership in, in the for-profit and non-for-profit. Uh, section sure in the province for a long time. So uh, I just want you to know that 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 that's been everyone's observation. So thank oh, you for thank that. You. Thank you. It's uh, a tough so to host sometimes as a working <laughs> It is. It is. We. I. I, I totally get it. So with but that, if you can, I want to say one last thing though. But if you can, yeah, do your please work, do. If you can do your work and come home at the end of the day and feel that you made the community a better place, then it feels a okay to not be with your children for those eight hours because at least you know that you're making the community a better place. Yeah, you know what? That's, totally that, that's going to be such a meaningful statement to the people listening to this uh, podcast. So thank you for making that. I'm glad that you uh, reminded me that you wanted to make that last comment. So um, anything else before I, uh, I, I close her off? Have a great summer. So with that, the gift of another Brain Trust Philanthropy Powered by Vitreo podcast has been committed. Well, that's about it for this episode of Brain Trust Philanthropy. We are taking a break in August. I hope you will tune in again in September when our panel will include Alison Pitscalny, Melody Song, and Gina Rothstein, who will be talking with us about big data in the nonprofit sector. Brain Trust Philanthropy is powered by Vitreo and is produced by Lauren McMurray at Alchemy Communications and by me, Vincent Duckworth. Brain Trust Philanthropy is recorded in beautiful downtown Calgary, Alberta, Follow our show and engage with fellow listeners on Twitter at Powered by Vitreo. You can subscribe to Brain Trust Philanthropy on iTunes or by visiting our website at vitreogroup.ca. 
Wishing all of you success in your mission, peace in your lives, hope in your hearts. I'm Vincent Duckworth.